0: When our children were at um, kinder, equivalently, we used to both drop off and pick up. And one of the mothers came up to me and said, you are so lucky. You know, your husband comes to pick up. Obviously, he's got a really easy job. He can do that. And I said, "Mm, no, well, he's an intensive care specialist. What does your husband do? And she said, he's an intensive care specialist. And the next week he was at pick up. I suppose the moral of the story is my husband had gone and said, my wife and myself are both in the profession. We both have to be able to juggle this.
1: Welcome to Pomegranate, podcast of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. I'm Mick Cavazzini, and today we talk about gender equity in medicine. While more than half of all medical students and trainees are women, they make up only 30% of registered physicians. When it comes to clinical leadership positions, it's down to single digits, and the gender pay gap in medicine is also worse than what it is across all professions. Although there are many reasons for this, a significant factor affecting career progression is child-rearing, both in terms of the time conflicts and the structural biases associated with it. To understand these in more detail, I spoke to Stephanie Schurer.
2: I'm a senior lecturer in applied health economics at the University of Sydney.
1: We met with Catherine Yelland, Director of Medicine and Older Persons Service at Redcliffe Hospital Brisbane, although most listeners will know her as the current president of the RACP.
3: For many years, when I had young children, the working hours were all the working hours. And so that trying to work a normal working day, look after children and then study on the top of it is really a superhuman effort. Now you can say, well, don't men have that too? Yes, but we know that there is a gap in um, participation in household chores, which roughly divides at two-thirds women, one-third men. But if you wait to complete your training, you may be compromising your ability to have a family. And so there is this dilemma. The men do not have the same time pressure. And many of us are pretty keen that our daughters complete their education and their training as early as they can so that they have the maximum choices. Now, um, who is responsible for this drop-off in uh, women's participation in higher level training i think it is complicated and um, yes we have uh, a provision for family leave or other leave and we have made that as flexible as we possibly can but there's only so far you can go and in the end you do have to produce a competent specialist
1: now some figures of a different sort stephanie your studies have found that Australian female GPs earn 24% less than men and for specialists the earnings disadvantage was around 17%. Can you tell us what the main explanation for this gap is?
2: Yeah, so in this particular study we have conducted recently we wanted to identify labor force attachment factors and it is true work hours expl- differences in work hours between men and women explain a large proportion of this gender earnings gap, but it doesn't explain everything. Usually it explains up to 60% of the differences. So we try to dig a little bit deeper. And what we find that by age 40 plus, women were up to 50% likely to have interrupted their career at least for one year, independent of whether they had children or not. Whereas for men, this figure was only 15%. So we realized that women, even if they don't have children, they may have other reasons why they interrupt their careers. So what is very common in the medical um, discipline is to have partners from the same area or from the occupation. So what we think may be going on is that some women don't have to work necessarily. They may opt out and say, for two years I interrupt the career, but this is just pure speculation. There's many other factors we looked at, Um, how long their consultations are. We find that women practitioners spend a little bit longer per patient, so we think maybe women um, don't churn through patients that much, but (coughs) taken together, it's only 65% of the gender earnings gap or pay gap that we can explain.
1: Another explanation for the pay gap is the relative fraction of women in different specialties. The more lucrative surgical specialties have proportions as low as 10 to 15%. And ophthalmology and intensive care are also particularly low. Conversely, pediatrics, obstetrics and gynaecology, reproductive health and public health medicine all have a majority of women. Research shows that women and men choose specialties for the same reasons, whether it's an interest in specific types of patients, procedural skills or adaptable work hours. Here's ENT surgeon Elizabeth Sigston.
4: Well, I chose surgery because I love the surgery. I love the fact that I can assess a situation quickly, um, be able to help people. It's the, the, you need a certain level of decisiveness, and I enjoy variety, so I get that from my surgical specialty that I've chosen.
1: Liz is a leader in the Monash Health Program to support career development of women in medicine, along with endocrinologist Helena Teed, who runs the diabetes unit.
0: I um, also lead research group as a professor of women's health and I'm the executive director for Monash Partners Academic Health Science Centres and I have too many hats.
1: I asked them whether the time demands of certain specialties in particular made them less compatible with family life.
0: There are many uh, strategies, I think, within that. For example, people who go into cardiology, they don't necessarily have to be interventional cardiologists, and if they do, they now tend to have really good roster systems, so they're on one night a week, which is much more manageable. The reality is some specialties will always be more on call, um, more after hours, more hands-on. But, you know, there are, you can still be flexible around that. I remember I was in one of those scenarios where there was me and all the heads of units of endocrine in, in Melbourne, and I was the only woman there. And they started having a conversation with her complaining about the fact that they couldn't get young women to step up into senior roles. But I said, Well, what jobs are you offering? Every single job was full time and full time only immediately after they qualified. There was no mentoring or role models or any other women in senior positions in those units.
4: Yeah, and I think the other thing is that, you know, when we're talking about flexibility, it's, it's not just for women. You can't have a good career, you know, as a female doctor if, if your partner doesn't have some of that flexibility as well. So it shouldn't be that this is a special thing for women so that they can still go and do all the things for the children. It should be something across the board. So everyone has a better input into their family life.
1: Now, it's sometimes argued that the poor rate of progression of women to senior positions is a reflection of experience New Zealand data show that women doctors between the ages of 35 and 55 work on average 10 hours less per week than their male colleagues. And in the US, female lawyers and MBA graduates will have lost a total of 8 months in the workplace in the 15 years after having had a child. So Helena, would it be fair to say that a doctor of age 50 with 8 months less in the hospital somehow lacked
0: expertise? You can't get away from the fact that you have to have a reasonably intense period of training and you have to have a minimum number of hours if you've got a technical skill. Um, But I also think that the concept of working 60 hours a week versus 30 hours a week is arguably probably not much different.
4: And, you know, when when you come into the senior positions, um, again, does the job really need to be full-time rather than on what your outcome is? And when you look at experience, you know, there's advantages in having life experience. You know that becomes important in making you a better doctor. And I don't think we should um, minimise that.
1: Catherine Yelland, once more.
3: You're talking about a whole range of issues here, but career progression on the whole isn't about how good a doctor you are. Career progression for women is much more about all the added extras. Not just seeing the patients. It's about participating in committees, about um, perhaps conducting research, about having all those added extras. And this is this may be one of the critical issues: is those added extras are often done at the end of the day or after work.
1: So it's all the little extra things. It's not that you're any worse at your job because you've taken time. It's the volunteering for committees and.
3: Do we choose the college committee? Well, the Parents and Citizens Association Committee.
2: Getting these publications out. And that brings me to a point that what could solve some of these problems, you may need to be willing to outsource some of these responsibilities. So you may have to hire someone who helps you to pick up the kids at five o'clock from childcare and then have this extra one and a half hours in the workplace. Or you may purchase uh, support in the house to help you cleaning and purchasing the food. So one policy measures how the government can support the career progressions of women, that you make these expenditures tax deductible. So Sweden is a a pioneer in this. Since 2007, you can tax deduct 50% of your expenditures on activities in the household.
0: And increasingly, I mean, if you're a physician and you're going for a senior position or a head of unit, you need to have an academic track record. However, these days it's become so incredibly competitive. And the reality is it is very difficult to just disappear and go to an international conference and leave your family at home for a week. And, you know, if you look at the gender success rate in a lot of the um, recent fellowships and, and grant rounds, it continues to be inequitable. But there are ways around it. So, in mentoring a large team of um, mainly women, because I work in women's health, um, we have very deliberate planning around those career stages. In, in my team, we, when they come near the end of their physician training to their PhD, we plan their PhD around their planned interruptions if they wish to have a family we very proactively talk about that and the type of research they do and the way they keep up their output while they're on maternity. leave all of that's structured and planned and I think in a way being an academic gives you more flexibility so when my children were young I could work from home I could work after hours so actually it allowed me to progress my career in a way that I didn't have to necessarily be hands-on in clinics all the time
1: Some conservatives in the UK have argued that the tendency for female doctors to work part-time and retire earlier means that it's not an effective way to spend the public's half a million pounds to train each of them. Catherine, is there a more generous way to frame this economic rationalist argument?
3: I think we have to look at this in a slightly different way. Women have longer working lives now. The, the care responsibilities don't go on... At the same intensity, and they don't go on forever. When that changes, then why aren't women saying, Okay, I'm ready now? There is um, not enough encouragement of middle aged women back into those positions they have dropped off the radar and they don't put themselves forward and say, look, I'd like to do this, it would be enjoyable and fulfilling. And I've got a lot to offer in um, the professional sphere. I know how to chair a meeting. I know how to work with other people. I know how to get things done.
2: I can't really comment on that exact question, but I, I can comment on something else that goes into this direction. And Catherine has alluded to this. I've seen many women's, um, women who used to work in academia, but interrupted their career. And then five or six years down the track, they felt they're no longer competent enough to push their careers again. Well-trained women then saying, I, I can't really demand anything from a workplace. and I So this is not a loss in actual human capital, but a loss in self-confidence. And I think this is some of the troubles that women have in the workplace. I mean, there can be tools that, for instance, the college can provide or that universities can provide to start mentoring programs that women mid-age are assigned a mentor who helps them come back. In some countries, retirement age has been set already to 67. So so the, the work life is, anyhow, longer and could be more flexible. And therefore, this also has an impact on what is the net effect of training someone, because people may cost that amount, but they may work much longer.
1: Liz, is it more difficult to run a surgical ward or any hospital department? with lots more flexible roles and part-time positions in the mix?
4: I think it's a little bit about developing really clear strategy around building the team, sort of planning a few years out rather than sort of it's happening and oh, let's let's find who we can. And I, I believe moving forward the only way that we're going to have a strong, sustainable public health system is to have properly co-located public and private practice, because otherwise the temptation is for people just to do private practice. But it needs to be on a different model to what exists at the moment because it's not the model we have isn't financially
0: viable. Yeah. The other thing is even on logistics. So I have quite a few young women in the unit now, and a lot of them are almost rotating on maternity leave. So the more women you get in there, the more logistics you can shuffle to actually maintain positions of people when they come back in. But there are also inherent barriers. So, for example, if you're a registrar and you finish your full-time work, I then employ you as a part-time consultant. If you go on maternity leave any time in the next nine months, I have to pay you as almost a full-time consultant out of our unit budget, even though you're only working two days a week, and I get absolutely no support from the organisation of maternity leave. Um, Two years ago, I had seven of my staff on maternity leave we were for the first time in 10 years in the red substantially and you know we went to the organization and they said well yes all the nursing budgets have maternity leave but no none of the medical budgets have maternity leave and you can't have it so there are inherent problems they're structural and and those things can be fixed by organisation. that's part of that culture
2: so this is a very difficult question to answer because first of all 14 weeks at minimum pay are being paid by the government. But of course, high-skilled women want to have not only a minimum pay, but they want to have at least, I don't know, 80% of the full pay because they're so high-skilled. And some, some organizations do pay this in the private sector. So in order to compete for the best people you need to offer that in in a research or in a a hospital environment as well. So there is a very famous study that looked at the glass ceiling in Sweden and parental leave schemes that they're perceived as being very costly to the employers. And so there may be indeed negative discrimination against women because they need to be paid for at least one year at full pay scale. And um, I think the only way out there is that men have to take parental leave as well and that you have to schedule in paid parental leave into the budget. So Sweden is doing this on a national level. Men have to take for two months paid parental leave. Otherwise, the woman will not get the paid parental leave. And once you you force men and women alike to take it, you take out the whole discrimination aspect. So more mandating in terms of avoiding discrimination by by force, so to speak, I think will not work out because employers will be always smarter in finding out who should not be hired.
3: We should acknowledge that the career penalty for men who take substantial time out is actually greater than it is for women because it is not so socially acceptable. And until we also look at that one...
1: As a social problem, as a cultural problem. As a problem. cultural
3: issue... That's a problem that they have as well.
1: In the public system, there's a transparent pay scale. So there really shouldn't be room for such discrimination. But is it possible that women are started out on a lower step so they've got a longer way to go, Stephanie?
2: So data in the US doesn't find this. So the Elisa Sassa um, article doesn't find that. So she, had, she doesn't find any differences in entry-level pay. It comes up later. And it may not be discrimination. It may be just that women don't negotiate in the same way, that they're saying, I am I accept any offer, whereas a man may say, you have to give me two scales up the scale. I'm not taking the job at this scale. I think for women, the solution will not be to be framed in this victim position, saying, you know, we, we earn less money and we are discriminated against... I think women who do want to have certain careers need to send signals and that can not only be legislated. And remember
3: also, it's not an ongoing trajectory upwards from, um, you know, admin officer to CEO, it may be, I want to be this kind of doctor looking after these patients, I get there after I do my training and other experience, and then I actually just want to work in that area as a clinician for the rest of my life. That's a very acceptable career.
1: Although it's illegal in Australia and New Zealand for an employer to discriminate against a woman on the basis that she might become pregnant, value judgments about having children pervade the medical culture. Over a quarter of members surveyed by the RANZ College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists said that they'd been asked about future pregnancies by a prospective employer. Helena Teed once again.
0: A good colleague of mine was told at her interview, "Um, if you give me your uterus in a jar, you can have the job. Now, you know, that was a while ago and was completely unacceptable. Um, And, you know, there are also institutions. There is a very well-known hospital in Melbourne and the entire environment in that organisation is really adversarial. No one works part-time. There's no flexibility. If you have a child, you're pretty much out. And... And it's not, um, it's not malicious or vindictive, it's just a very blokey culture and it can make women quite uncomfortable. Um, and it may not just be, you know, there are some fantastic empathetic males out there but they also may not have been able to survive the hierarchical um, self-promotion type of arrangement which got people to those senior positions in the past.
4: Yeah, I think there's a difference between being assertive and being aggressive and I think they often get confused and often what you see is aggression. Um, and I've been very fortunate to be able to step outside medicine and so I run uh, run a couple of businesses. And When you step out of a hierarchical system, leadership becomes about um, action, uh, creativity, inspiration and purpose rather than about power. And that's why you know the nursing
0: staff and the registrars love being in my theatre. Because mm. you don't throw knives at them and yell at them. No. <laughs> I've been in some of those and that was quite daunting. I think, as I said, a lot of this is about the changing of the garden leadership style. The only reason I actually, to be honest, went on to any of my leadership roles was because early in my career, I was nominated for a leadership training program. And the facilitator said at the end of the 18 months, do you aspire to have power? To which I quite emphatically stated, definitely no. Under no circumstances does that what I want to go to work for. And he said, what you're doing is conceptualising power as a top-down control concept of power, which is not something that would appeal to most women. But if you think about leadership as the ability to influence and impact, then it's beholden on you if you have the ability to do that, to take the sorts of positions that will strategically put you in a place where you can do that. And that one conversation changed my entire career and it just made me brave, basically. I absolutely agree. I think I've had
4: the same experience. And it's about having a relatable role model and about being a woman doing that position, not a woman being like a man doing the position. And there's a big, big difference. Certainly the, the Women in Medicine program has really opened up that conversation across campus, cross specialty, because it's not something that you're ever taught or um, have opportunity to be exposed to in medicine they just kind of get skipped because women tend to sit back and wait to be asked we we wait to be invited in general whereas um, the the guys tend to put themselves forward and you know if there's a job application that has 10 factors you know women will need to tick off all 10 before they apply whereas men will tick off five and go yeah I can do it And that's certainly a difference um, that may have an impact on what we see in leadership roles.
0: Yeah, so I agree. I think the main thing about it is it's changed the focus in the organisation to be about empowerment and enabling and training and building capacity. It's been linked to really tangible things, opportunities for more junior stepwise roles in leadership. You know, a unit isn't really run by one person. So we have an executive, and that executive has younger people with smaller, valued, funded roles. For example, one's the education lead, one's the quality and safety lead, one's the professional development lead, and they can rotate those portfolios and get experience. Um, and I've found that over the years, young women have gravitated to me for mentorship, I think partly because they can now say, well, that's what I'd like my career look like, the well-balanced Life with with children having a career clinically and academically. Or I might choose to be very part-time for a while, or I might choose not to have children. All of those decisions are fine, but it looks like you've got a choice.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Pomegranate. Of course, we haven't been able to cover every issue faced by women in medicine, so email us with your experiences and feedback, or tweet us at the RACP. To read more about the Monash Health Women in Medicine Program and other resources related to the story, visit the Pomegranate website at racp.edu.au forward slash POMCAST. Many thanks to our guests Helena Teed, Elizabeth Sigston, Stephanie Shurer, and Catherine Yelland. The views expressed are their own and may not represent those of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. And thanks also to Beverly Bucallon and Marion Leighton for their help in researching the story. I'm Mick Capazzini, and I hope you've enjoyed the program.